This is Crossings, the refugee experience in America. Before we introduce today's guest, I want to share a few words about the sequence of episodes we are producing. The broader mission of Crossings the Refugee Experience in America has always been to amplify the stories of refugees and asylees as they integrate into American life and make their contribution to our culture and economy. Although they must summon courage and have individual agency in the process, by definition, they cannot make the journey alone. It takes facilitators, governmental and non-governmental agencies, community-based organizations, individuals dedicated to their most basic human needs, and fostering the conditions where these new Americans can thrive. The efforts to acknowledge refugees did not become official national policy in the U.S. until after the fall of Saigon during the Vietnam War. Nonetheless, movements have acted to receive refugees from war and oppression throughout the 20th century. Earlier, when we take into account refugees from slave rebellions in Haiti. But one of the largest migrations of oppressed peoples in this country occurred across three centuries, and principally in the 19th century. It occurred within our country and our nation held among its very citizens, the oppressors, as well as the liberators. Rarely discussed as refugee asylee stories, these are the narratives of abolitionists, the methods of the Underground Railroad, and Civil War Union refugee camps. In various ways, they were all part of the difficult road to escape slavery and oppression. And these are the stories we are taking on in the next several episodes. The stories, the tools, the allies and energy in the movement reflect the contemporary refugee experience. We will have support from contemporary historians and scholars, artists and musicians, and those like our guest, with experience across generations of family. Our episodes will be supported by shorter extras and articles on our blog. Today, we start near the end of the story, a mile marker along the road to freedom. We start here because the episode is released near the eve of Juneteenth and with the insights from a new member of our story team, Isaac Points. Juneteenth commemorates the account of Union soldiers arriving in Texas recorded as June 19, 1865, more than two years after President Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation. The story reports their delivery of the news that the Civil War was over and slaves were granted legal rights of free persons across the country. We know this wasn't truly the end of slavery in our country, nor did it put an end to the cycle of systemic racism and barriers to full empowerment of black persons. But it is significant 
In the story of the growing early empowerment for persons of color, for these reasons and more, the commemoration of Juneteenth brings joy to people across all corners of our country, and it is celebrated with festivals which have radiated out of Texas to other states. Our guest is Isaac Points. Isaac is the former president of the nonprofit association which operated the Five Points Juneteenth Celebration. It grew to become one of the largest Juneteenth celebrations in the nation. It has been previously centered in Denver's Five Points neighborhood. Five Points has a deep history of black culture and entertainment, and more recently, black-owned enterprises. But it was also afflicted by a legacy of oppressive redlining practices from governments and white-dominated financial institutions of the city's past. Isaac was raised in Five Points. Juneteenth festivals have been celebrated in the Mile High City since 1968. Isaac will be a featured voice for some of the leaders of abolitionist movements in our forthcoming episode on the Underground Railroad, Civil War refugee camps, and the abolitionist movement. Today, he'll speak about Juneteenth's place in our history, his engagement in our forthcoming episodes, and a neighborhood he clearly loves. He joined us from a rehearsal studio in North Denver. Here is episode 10, exploring Juneteenth with Isaac Points, a mile marker on the road to freedom. This is Crossings, the refugee experience in America. Isaac Points, you were president of the Five Points Business Association, which put on the Juneteenth celebration in Denver, which ranks as one of the longest running and largest in the U.S. How did your involvement come about? Well, being born in Five Points and raised a lot of my early childhood there, I just always had a love and affinity for Five Points. You know, Five Points does share my name. My name is Points. But I um, always loved the community, and I was always taught as a child to give back to the community. And my mother, who, you know, really put that through my head as a mantra, she even had a restaurant down there through the years, and we would always be part of the Juneteenth celebration even while we were children. So when I joined the, when I was elected on the board of Five Points Business Association, you know, I was just really honored and thrilled that I could come back to my old community and help and assist in any way I could, you know, help Five Points get back on its feet because it was designated as an urban, you know, economically blighted area. And I knew the transformation was going to come and the gentrification was going to come in, but I wanted, I wanted a lot of the old businesses to stay there, to remain there, like the the chicken places, the catfish places, and, you know, the restaurants I knew as a child. But, and I wanted to make sure it just wasn't going to be sanitized and turn it to some super condo high rise through there. So I sat on about every board of every big building that went down there. 
you know, to make sure they didn't just put a, you know, glass tower to blot out the sun that wanted to keep close to the colors and the hues, even in the paint in the buildings down there. Then also bearing in mind that they wouldn't block out the sun of an existing small mom and pop business over there. But, uh, you know, during the Juneteenth celebrations, they would always uh, get a headliner. And so I remember as a child, they brought in James Brown to the Juneteenth celebration. One of the old timers there, McKinley Harris, is really good friends with JB. So he brought him in and I was just amazed. Here I am seeing James Brown. I'm like eight or nine years old and he's singing in the streets, you know, say it loud. I'm black and I'm proud. It was just amazing. So I think it just got into my bloodstream you know, to help with the Five Points Business Association. And then, you know, when I joined the association, you know, part of your capacity as a being on the board of directors, how you serve, you know, you have to get the celebration, Juneteenth celebration, you know, put together. So I would even close my business, for, you know, like a few weeks before the celebration because I was just so excited about it. You know, I'd get all the entertainment book, you know, from national acts to local acts. And I always had an affinity for the local musicians, you know, like some of the people that my mother used to say, well, why'd you get this awful guy over here? And I said, well, you know what, mom, he showed up every single year on time, ready to perform. I can't turn my back on him. You know, I got to let him get a, share the same stage as some of the national powerhouses that come in here. So, I mean, it's a great, great time, you know, with people having, you know, food booths there and great music and people selling their crafts and wares. My mother used to sell, you know, make dresses and sell them during Juneteenth, during the celebrations when we were kids. I remember her having a booth there while she'd be selling dresses and it's just exciting to watch, you know, and, and in five points to have something like that going, I was really quite amazing. Then after I joined the board, we transformed it into just a, used to be just like a two block festival. We wound up encompassing all the way from, Park Avenue all the way to almost Downing Street, you know, just, and we became the largest in the country at one point. It was just exciting to watch that. So for our listeners' benefit, I know the Five Points neighborhood has a, a long history emerging from a streetcar suburb of sorts to once being the home of Denver's entertainment district, hosting globally recognized talent, including the likes of Duke Ellington and Miles Davis, and you were raised there. Imagine you're doing one of your tours, which you used to do, oh, which yeah. I understand. We, we talked about that earlier. Uh-huh. Um, what, what would you want our listeners to know about this neighborhood and its uh, cultural history? Well, it's so rich in history. A lot of, a few of the clubs there, as with a historic Rossonian hotel and nightclub there, they would bring in the big acts like the Duke Ellington, but they had Billy Holiday coming in. All the national acts would come in there perform, even if they had big shows in the establishments that were only for whites only. They would still come to the community and do shows down there. And uh, so the Rossonian, the Casino Cabaret, which housed the ex-servicemen's club. And then there was another little club called the Club of Colored Porters and Waiters. They had their own club. There's like a union there. Then there was a historic uh, Roxy Theater. So actually Sammy Davis Jr. had performed down there. You know, they'd bring entertainers down there. It didn't have the big um, panache as the Rossonian, but it was a nice place. You know, and I've attended that movie theater as a child as well. But seeing, you know, just the 
the leaders and, you know, the kings of entertainment come down to, you know, historic five points is just really something. So, um, you know, they used to equate a lot of those nightclubs to the Cotton Club in New York, you know, and it, and it really was. I mean, and whites would come down into five points who otherwise wouldn't be go down there any other time of the week. But when the National Acts would come through, they came right down to five points to enjoy the festivities and listen to great entertainment down there, enjoy the wonderful food down there. Also in five points, our association got together and we put had murals installed on the Deep Rock Water building over there, which they still have an artesian well right in the middle of Five Points. So the wonderful water that you drink from Deep Rock Water comes from the heart of Five Points, an old, old artesian well down there. So we got together and put some beautiful murals on. they allowed us to put over their windows down there. So it just didn't look like a plant there of, you know, different, you know, doctors, historic doctors and nurses. And uh, my mentor, the great Charlie Burrell, who's a Jackie Robinson of the symphony orchestras on those uh, buildings down there. It's just fantastic going through there. Okay, and uh, with the, going back to the Juneteenth celebration, it was started by a man who relocated from Texas to Five Points. That was Otha Rice, and he had a bar down there. So he missed the Juneteenth celebrations they had in Texas, where, you know, after the Emancipation Proclamation, that's where the first Juneteenth festivals were held. And so he wanted to bring back that celebration and that feeling to Denver. So in his bar during Juneteenth weekend, he would offer fried bologna sandwiches and barbecue and uh, red soda water and, uh, you know, Kool-Aid, you know, in addition to his drinks in his bar, you know, to help bring the celebration. So he's the one instrumental in getting the Juneteenth celebration started here. And also Big Al Richardson, who had Big Al's Lounge. He's another Texan. That was a transplant here in Five Points. And he, he took that on to another level, getting that Juneteenth celebration to even grow a little bit more from there. You know, it's interesting because Juneteenth festivals have really radiated out of Texas. And you're talking about the actual history of the individuals who brought it to other states, yeah. like Colorado. A lot of them were transplanted Texans. You know, they'd get to see, so y'all don't celebrate Juneteenth? And, you know, a lot of people don't even know what it is. You know, it doesn't matter if it's white or black. A lot of people aren't familiar with the festival at all. You know, maybe one day it will be a national celebration. Yeah. And nothing against uh, transplanted Texans. You're, you're looking at one. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Isaac, we are linking this episode right now to what we hope will be several in a sequence that examines the movement of enslaved black persons seeking safety for themselves and their families, and an even more elusive freedom. It's more than a metaphor for a refugee crisis. The years preceding the 1800s into wartime, the Civil War, and thereafter involved a, a massive and hazardous migration. Perhaps hundreds of thousands were part of this movement to asylum and the hoped-for freedom. We've asked you to participate with Insight by embodying the narratives of leaders like William Still and Frederick Douglass. No pressure, by the way. What do you want listeners to gain from this experience and your involvement in the podcast? Well, the main thing when people to gain is I told you before, 
when I'd go to school and they'd teach me history lessons and my mother would make me read the books cover to cover, you know, in one day. And it wasn't going by where the teachers would read this chapter for this week. You know, she had me read the classics in second grade, you know, Dickens and Dumas. So, and I explained that when I'd come home from school, my mother would say, okay, what did you learn in history today? So, well, we taught this George Washington chopped down a cherry tree and, you know, blah, blah, blah. She goes, oh, how cute. She goes, but this is what really happened. So she would give me a narrative and history that was handed down to her of the real history that was left out of the history books. And that is so important. And right now we're going through that. As you well know that people don't want this history taught still, you know, even after all these years. So, you know, people have to know that. I, I even passed down the history to my kids. I explained to them my great-grandfather was a little boy sitting on a fence as a slave when Sherman's army came through pillaging and burning up the South there, you know, through Georgia. And I said, that had to be something, to see something like that. Just had to be apocalyptic to watch something like that. So, I, you know, I have my kids, and they're really fascinated by that. They just can't imagine that. You know, and I'm only just, you know, a couple generations removed from slavery. So uh, really, it's very important for people to know that. And, you know, you know, Frederick Douglass, who was an incredible orator and speaker, and I was uh, reading up on him. Now, he kind of he lucked out because he was a slave in Maryland and escaped, and he didn't go through this hazardous journey of migration as a lot of slaves did. So, I mean, he basically, you know, left the plantation in Maryland. I think he, he got on a train dressed up as a sailor, you know, and got out. But, you know, this, you know, the history of this, like you said, this is really a refugee migration that these people went through and the hazards. I can't even imagine trying to you know, escape from the deep south to attain freedom in the north. I, I, I just can't imagine. I mean, I just drove from uh, Denver to New Orleans a couple weeks ago, and I got pulled over by the police just driving through there. So think about it. And, uh, you know, my history teacher who I loved in high school, he explained to me that a lot of the police problems you know, that even existed this very day came from the police were really set up as slave catchers so this um this idea of just you know being degrading and demeaning to people of color it's kind of been instilled for generations you know ever since you know colonial america was founded you know when they got together getting these uh appointing these sheriffs and lawmen it was mainly to get you know, go after fugitive slaves. And then, you know, we discussed that even when some of them did make it north, that was no guarantee to make it into, uh, you know, north of the Mason-Dixon line. Some would still be caught and return. And sometimes they just, any black person they saw in the north, they'd consider them a slave. And they'd go right, go into slavery and had never been a slave. And it's important to give credit to the other people who, helped along this way, such as the Quakers. I have mad love for the Quakers and the American Friends and even the congregation, Congregational Church in New England. You do the right thing. That's, that's the bottom line. You cannot enslave another human being. You cannot kill another human being on the basis of their skin or their creed. I, I just love how the Protestant churches of the North really did their part in the Underground Railroad, making sure these people were, you know, found their way to freedom.
and a, and, a, and a decent life or just a life in general. So it's really something. And this really is a refugee movement's situation and migration, which has gone through, you know, these years. And, you know, the story need, really needs to be told about this. And I, I'm glad it's put the perspective it's put in now is that these were refugees that were just fleeing a horrible lifestyle. You know, I asked my grandmother, you know, um, you know, what did her parents teach her about slavery? And she says they wouldn't speak of it. And my mother, who knew her, her grandmother, or my great-grandmother, who was a slave as well, said she would always ask her. She goes, well, what was it like being a slave? What was it like? And she refused to talk about it. She said she couldn't understand until she got older. She just felt that must have been so horrible it could it was just unspeakable you know like the holocaust survivors like a lot of holocaust survivors you can't get them to repeat anything and i grew up in a jewish neighborhood and you know i equate a lot of the situations to that but uh, my grandma great grandmother my mother's grandmother she kept her african name she refused to give it up so she kept her african name till the day she died so even as a slave so that's really quite amazing so um, that's what, you know, this would be really exciting a time for people to understand and really take a look back, you know, look at this, these times of, you know, the people that just really became refugees. And it hasn't been used in that metaphor. They're usually saying, oh, the escaped slaves and that was it. You know, it, it was just, just really something. And, you know, we had a different time here. You know, being in uh, the U.S., because like in places like South America, Caribbean, you know, they, you know, a lot of those sl slaves had a better time. They said, well, it's warm and hot here. We know how to survive. <laughs> you know, they'd pick up and leave. And in Haiti, you know, the history of Haiti and the island of Dominica, where, you know, the French had a brutal slavery system. He says, yes, we want you to. Uh, cut down the sugar canes with these machetes. And then these slaves, wait a minute, we're holding machetes and we outnumber you, you know, 100 to 1. Slavery's not going to exist here anymore. And in the U.S., we didn't have that luxury. And really because of the slave rebellions in places like Haiti and South America, that sent, you know, waves, shock waves of fear going into the U.S. colonies. Okay, we got to prevent that from happening here. So that's why there's a, so the, you know, the gun laws and, you know, the slave acts and, you know, you know, making slaves three-fifths of a man. You know, they, it really became institutionalized. You know, the U.S. held on to slavery longer than anybody. You know, said, so this is here to stay and we're going to keep it here forever. So this story really needs to be told about, you know, a lot of these people that lost their lives and limbs just to escape being held in bondage. Well, we're certainly glad that you're here to be part of the storytelling process, Isaac. Oh, absolutely thrilled to be. So, Isaac, you're a musician and a band leader also, maybe even resuming dates and touring after the pandemic. Would you uh, tell us about your role in the band and the power of this music to create joy in the world. Well, music is my, my just love as a child, you know, 
seemed like I always was meant to perform music, always loved it. My mother raised me as a classical trumpet player. Then I switched to uh, bass guitar in junior high school. But music has just always been a drug to me. You know, this is my high when I'm performing on stage and and all the gears just mesh and click together. There's nothing like it in the world. I really get high. And, you know, my mother didn't want me to be a professional musician. She wanted me to be an attorney. And she said, well, you know, you can play music in high school and college, and you, you can play for the football teams and all that. But after college, you have to be an attorney. She goes, because those musicians get hooked on dope. <laughs> so, uh, but she came to see me perform when I was 19, and she goes, you know, I was wrong. She said, I can see you. She goes, you're high as if you were on any drug. And this is what really makes you happy. And this is what you were meant to do. So I still go by that to this day. It still gives me that high and that buzz of performing when the crowd is happy and they're dancing and feeling good. And especially after, you know, the times we've gone through with COVID now. It's really exciting to see people starting to venture out now because, you know, as in the entertainment industry, everything died you know, last year. So now it's just starting to come back. So I'm just really having a blast. It's almost like reinventing, you know, during the COVID, you know, sitting at home and uh, just doing nothing. I'd sit there and practice my bass to the, you know, the cable radio stations, you know, the music channel. So sometimes I realize I'd say, well, I was telling my wife, I said, well, I think I learned 50, 60 songs today, you know? (laughs) So I think, COVID has made me even a better player, you know, or or taking apart stuff, songs that I've played for years. I go, oh, I've been missing that note all this time, faking the funk on it. But, you know, things will come back. And I I tour with the Platters group that's um, the lead singers based out of uh, Southeast Asia now. And those shows are going to eventually start to come back. I miss doing those shows where we travel around the world. So once world travel starts getting back on its feet, you know, I'll be doing those shows again. And with that, I just I just sing with them. But in my band, I play bass guitar and I sing with that. So uh, with my band, you have a big horn section and just really fun. It's, you know, it's a really party band. You know, it's all about dancing and having fun. And that's the Isaac Points Jakarta Band. Right. Yeah, the Jakarta Band. If you just get Jakarta Band, you'll get a band out of Indonesia. <laughs> so the Jakarta Band. Listen for future episodes featuring the words and music of the Underground Railroad, narratives and oratory from Frederick Douglass, Harriet Tubman, William Still, and others. The story of Civil War Union refugee camps, and even a Colorado connection with the abolitionist movement. Today's episode was co-produced with research by Janice Pugh Waller. It was written by producer Vincent Hostack with Isaac Points. Crossings, the Refugee Experience in America recognizes and thanks Ellen Mednick, Jackie Points, Susan Bellotti, and Roger Bellotti for their participation in the project and this episode. Theme music was composed, performed, and produced by John Orr Franklin. Discover music and appearances from Isaac Points and the Jakarta Band at thejakartaband.com spelled J-A-K-A-R-T-A. And bookmark our new podcast blog, Crossings the Refugee Experience in America.wordpress.com, and read supporting essays on the subject. We're on Facebook at Crossings Refugees, 
That's one word. The Twitter handle is at refugee underscore America. Thanks for listening.